When you're hiring, it feels amazing to finally close out a job search. But what if you could get rid of the search and just match? You can with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hey, Her Hoop Stats fans, welcome to another episode of the Her Hoop Stats Unplugged podcast. As always, you're here with Megan Gower. This week, I have to remind you all that Kyla Irwin and Molly Ben are not walk-ons for UConn, even if Gino Oriama did talk about recruiting struggles. Things aren't so dire for the Huskies that they're starting to walk-ons on the roster. All jokes aside, hope you all had a great Thanksgiving weekend, ate a lot of turkey, and are caught up on another crazy week of women's basketball. It was quite the exciting week in the NCAA front for women's hoops this uh, past weekend. We asked number one team, Oregon lost, number two team, Baylor lost, and literally as we were recording this podcast, the new number two team, Louisville lost, so quite a bit happening in women's hoops over the past week or so since we recorded our last episode. And without further ado, I'm here today with Calvin Wetzel. Hey, Calvin. Hey, Megan. How's it going? Good. How are you? I'm good. Good to be with you tonight. Definitely. So Calvin and I both caved and got flow hoops for the Thanksgiving weekend. So for all of you that missed the games because you didn't want to shell out $30, we've got you covered on this episode of the Unplugged podcast. Uh, So we're going to kind of break down some of those big games, crazy upsets from this past weekend, and then also some of the good games that are going on this week and coming up this weekend as well. So let's start it off with, I mean, Oregon lost on Saturday, Baylor lost on Saturday, South Carolina lost to Indiana on Thursday. Any like big takeaways from kind of some of the top 10 matchups and crazy games we saw this past weekend? Yeah, I mean, I know, you know, we're going to get into uh, some specific takeaways from each of these games. 
I think. But the overall takeaway is just how much parity there is this year. And it's so good for the game. You know, like I know from your perspective as a UConn fan, you like it probably feels good for the game when you have Brianna Stewart and you win 100 games in a row and go like undefeated three straight years. But for the rest of us, like it's really good for the game when anyone can be anyone and, you know, one and two can lose on the same day. It's just the unpredictability. It's just makes like must watch television anytime you have a top 10, top 15 matchup. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I think that's one of my big takeaways from the weekend, too. Like, if you are an Oregon or a Baylor fan, there's, like, definitely no need to panic. Like, they're good losses. They played three games in three days. It's fine. Nothing to worry about. But really, yeah, I think everyone's kind of been talking about this, like, elite tier in women's basketball. And most years, I think, you know, that's kind of like a, you know, four or five teams that we're talking about this year. I think most people are saying 10. I'd throw UCLA in there, too. So I'd say 11, like, teams that are, like, this elite group at the top right now and on any given night I really think any of those teams could beat each other you know there's no guarantee kind of going into that so definitely interesting I I don't think there's a clear number one team in the country right now I mean I argue that if Baylor gets Lauren Cox back they're probably the like favorite to be number one with Cox on the floor but still I don't think there's a clear number one team in the country right now which is something we probably haven't seen in a while so pretty exciting yeah, absolutely. We were just talking, you know, off air about how UConn could end up. I mean, Louisville's number two, and they're uh, they're losing by five right now to Ohio State as we record this. If Ohio State finishes that one off. I mean, there goes one of the top two, and um, UConn, you know, just moves up another spot. And UConn could work their way to number one by default, even though we both kind of agree that they're probably not actually the best team in the country. But that's just going to be the kind of year it is that. It's, it's not necessarily going to be this one team that you know is unbeatable that's number one. It's just going to be who's next up, who hasn't lost in the last three weeks. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think hope we'll see a lot more of these, you know, top 10 matchups going in, which will hopefully give us a better picture of what that top like elite tier looks like. I mean, we've moved from one Pac-12 team at number one to another Pac-12 team at number one. So um, definitely will be a lot of top 10 matchups going forward but yeah it's gonna be super interesting and I kind of watch how all this plays out throughout the season yeah I'm looking at the our leaderboards actually right now and there's 17 undefeated teams left two of them are losing I mentioned Louisville Florida State's also losing by seven at home to Michigan State right now so we could easily get down to 15 by the end of the night um with obviously you know another uh, several big matchups coming up in the next few weeks but I don't think there's going to be an undefeated team going in the tournament this year. I uh, I was looking up in the le- before. Actually, we didn't have one last year either. But before last year, there were seven undefeated teams going in the tournament in the last seven years, including that year 14 where Notre Dame and UConn both made it undefeated to the championship game. I don't think we're going to have that this year. I don't know what you think. I don't think we're going to get an undefeated team into maybe even into the conference tournaments. Honestly, what do you think? Yeah, I don't think so either. I mean, some of the other favorites to like be that team were probably Baylor. They already lost. I mean, I don't really wouldn't say that Oregon was a favorite to be it just because the Pac-12 is so strong. I will be shocked if UConn makes it out of their non-conference schedule undefeated. Um, so yeah, I really, I Louisville too. So yeah, I don't see there being a team going into the conference tournaments this year that is undefeated. To be honest. 
Yeah, definitely. Which I love. I, I love when anyone can beat anyone. It's it just makes the games that much more fun to watch. Exactly. Yeah. All right. So diving into some of the Paradise Jam games. I think first thing I think I want to talk about is South Carolina. So we saw South Carolina lose to Indiana on Thanksgiving, um, and then come back on Saturday to beat Baylor by I think fifteen points. So kind of two totally different performances. What to you stood out as like the difference between those two games? Well, one thing is that I think the game might have been different if Baylor had Lauren Cox. Obviously, Aaliyah Boston is a huge presence inside um, for South Carolina, and Lauren Cox, the reigning Big 12 Defensive Player of the Year, wasn't available to uh, to guard her inside. So she definitely could have uh, changed the outcome of that game, I think. But also, I think that's just a bad matchup for Baylor. Baylor is um, actually... 351st dead last in the country in three-point rate. They live in the paint. They take all their shots, you know, from from inside the arc. And when you have an Aaliyah Boston who protects the paint so well, um, and she's not even the only one on South Carolina, um, they also have Herbert Harrigan in the top 40 with over two blocks per game. So South Carolina is really hard to score on in the paint. And when you're a team that doesn't take threes and you rely on scoring in the paint, it's just a bad matchup. So, I don't even know that I necessarily would come out of that game and say, you know, South Carolina's better team than Baylor, but more so, you know, that that matchup didn't work for Baylor and Baylor was without their best player who would have been big. So that's kind of my takeaway from that game. Um, but the Indiana game, I mean, Indiana really kind of burst onto the scene. Everyone was looking at in the big 10, like Maryland as a favorite. And I know, uh, Kind of all the other M schools, I guess, too. Minnesota was ranked preseason, Michigan, Michigan State. Um, but Indiana kind of put the league on notice. I think uh, coming out of that game, Indiana has as good of a chance as any any team in the Big Ten to win the league. Yeah, definitely. One thing that struck me on that Baylor game, going back to that one, is that they really got beat up on the boards. Like South Carolina out-rebended them 43-29, to which is something you do not usually see from Baylor. Um, and even without Cox, I mean, they still had Melissa Smith and Queen Egbo in the paint. Kind of would have expected them to have the advantage on the board. So, yeah, definitely a tough matchup against Aaliyah Boston inside there. Honestly, I think Aaliyah Boston is pretty much, like, if you're looking at why Baylor or why South Carolina won against Baylor and lost to Indiana like that's the first thing I would point to she only played 14 minutes against Indiana before she filed out who's in major foul trouble and then against Baylor she had like 20 points 13 rebounds and two blocks I mean it's just part of having a freshman being such a core part of your lineup right like they're going to be a little bit inconsistent it takes time to get adjusted and get used to um you know, playing through the physicality of college compared to high school. But, yeah, I think that was the biggest difference for South Carolina against Indiana versus against Baylor. Yeah, and you raise a good point with the foul trouble with Aaliyah Boston because on the other side, actually Baylor had some foul trouble too in that game. Without Lauren Cox, you know, your front line gets a little bit thinner and then Queen Egbo fouled Aaliyah Boston on the floor twice in the first, I want to say, five or six minutes. So she had to sit, and Alyssa Smith finished with four fouls, kind of struggled to stay on the court for the whole game, um, you know, picking up some of that slack guarding Leah Boston as well. So that was another 
I mean, that's a, another big reason why I think Baylor got out-rebounded, to your point, is when you take away Lauren Cox with the injury, you take away Queen Egbo and Alyssa Smith for a good chunk of the game with foul trouble, all of a sudden a usually you know dominant front line for Baylor becomes pretty small. Yeah, definitely. And then I think another thing that struck me from the South Carolina and Baylor was the guard play. So for South Carolina, I'm, they really relied on Taisha Harris to kind of score against Baylor, which they didn't do against Indiana. They had kind of relied on their freshmen to be the ones to put up big buckets against Indiana, which maybe wasn't the best strategy over your senior guard. Um, So that was a big difference for them against Baylor. And then Baylor's guards really struggled against South Carolina. Um, They were, I think, Cooper and Landrum were combined like eight for 27 from the floor. So really struggled to get the ball through the hoop. Um, and then also without Cox on the floor, Baylor just really needs Dee Dee Richards to step up kind of like she did in their title run last year on the offensive end. And she only had three shot attempts against South Carolina. So again, just wasn't a huge offensive presence for them, which is they need someone else to step up and cut into that role without Cox on the floor. Yeah, I definitely agree. It's, you know, you always have to find kind of where your offense is going to come from when, when you lose someone like that. Um, and guard play, everyone talks about how big it is in March, but it's, it's, it's just big always. It's big in November. It's big in December. So yeah, I definitely agree that that was a pretty, pretty big key to both these games. Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, it's definitely something for Baylor to work on, but they've got plenty of time. I mean, Cooper's a grad transfer. She's new to the team. We all saw how Chloe Jackson worked out last year, so I <laughs> wouldn't be too concerned if you're a Baylor fan. I'm sure they'll make it work, but yeah, definitely something to keep an eye on going forward. Um, I don't think we've gotten too much of an update on the Cox injury either. I was reading some stuff today. It sounded like they were hoping she'd be back for Paradise Jam, um, but wasn't sounds like she might not play until the new year from something I read today that just because they don't have a lot of tough matchups kind of left before the holidays. Um, so they wouldn't really make sense to put her in without being fully healed. But I think come, you know, January, we'll definitely see her probably one of the games that comes to mind that they'll definitely want Cox is that UConn game January 9th. So that'll be quickly after the new year. Um, so hopefully they'll be at full strength for that. So we can kind of see a hopefully full strength versus full strength top 10 matchup there. Yeah, definitely. You don't want to rush her back. You have no reason to you know, risk anything. if She's not a hundred percent at this point exactly. when you're uh, when you're Baylor and you know, you're going to be a top five team regardless, and you're going to get a good seed still likely to get a one seed, if not a two in the NCAA tournament, you want to take your time, especially after the paradise jam, you have some of these, December matchups that are pretty winnable without Lauren Cox, like what they started out in the first few weeks. So you don't want to rush her back. Absolutely. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. I think that they'll probably be expected to pretty much run the table in the Big 12. So not a lot of concerns in conference play for them. So yeah, definitely not a reason to rush her back. We'll likely fall into that one seed if at worst, probably worst case, a two seed role. So nothing too worried to be about there. I guess the one other thing I would say, too, um, about the South Carolina versus Indiana game um, is just the three-point shooting in that game. Indiana was 7 for 15. Um, South Carolina was 2 for 19. That was Indiana's best three-point shooting game of the season and South Carolina's worst three-point shooting game of the season. Three-point shooting is one of those stats that kind of 
it's high variance, you know, fluctuates from game to game, less predictable than any given game, a lot more than some of those other stats. So it's also kind of hard to read too much into one game where South Carolina shoots two for 19 when they're shooting. If you take out that game, they're actually 13th in the country in three-point percentage. So that's a little bit of an aberration just in terms of shot making behind the arc. And we're not going to see that from them very often. But at the same time, that takes nothing away from how well Indiana played. And uh, I mean, Indiana backed it up, right? In the Big Ten ACC Challenge, it's beat Miami. They're not a fluke. So um, definitely doesn't take anything away from them and, you know, how well they played. Yeah, definitely agreed with that. Yeah, I mean, three-point shooting, I kind of feel like it's one of those things. Yes, there is, like, teams that have better or worse three-point defense, but a lot of it is just sometimes the team, if a team can get it to fall really well from beyond the arc, it can make all the difference in kind of a classic case of that in that game. Right, exactly. South Carolina is not going to go two for 19 probably the rest of the season. So, exactly. Um, but, I mean, speaking of three-point shooting kind of being an aberration of low three-point shooting, that can – probably segue us right into the Oregon Louisville game with, with that number that Oregon put up from behind the arc. Yeah. Oregon, who's probably arguably the best offensive team in the country. Most would probably say that did not have a solid offensive night against Louisville in that loss. Um, Though I will say, I mean, part of it, yes, is just the wall just didn't fall, but I think, Louisville's defensive strategy just threw them off their game a lot, which is a big part of the like rough offensive night for Oregon in that game. Yeah, absolutely. Oh yeah, definitely. Oregon was three for, excuse me, six for 35 from behind the arc. And this is the team that led the nation in three point shooting last year. So on one hand, you look at that and say, maybe that's an aberration. They just missed some shots. But I mean, you know, we both went back and watched it. We, we both were uh, gone with family things for Thanksgiving. I was, you were too, right? Yeah. So uh, we both had to go back and watch those flow hoops replays. But from my perspective, going back and watching that game, it was definitely some of each. Definitely, you know, there were a few open looks that Oregon had that they, they often knocked down. They just didn't fall. But at the same time, that Louisville game plan, was phenomenal in um, putting Kylie Shook, their center, on Mignon Moore, uh, Oregon's point guard, or one of their two point guards, I guess, um, and just kind of sagging off, let letting uh, Kylie play in the paint. And uh, they, they basically dared Mignon Moore to shoot it. And she even made a couple threes early on, and they kind of stuck with the game plan, kept, kept Shook on her for probably half the game. It looked like, and and uh, it really just clogged up the paint. And uh, I mean, that's why Oregon took thirty-five shots from behind the arc. Was that game plan? And uh, the game plan came from. There's a kind of an interesting story behind it for anyone who follows the men's game as well. Um, the game plan came from that Duke UCF game in the tournament last year, where UCF center Taco Fall, seven foot six. They put him on Duke's point guard, Trey Jones, and basically just said, don't guard Trey Jones. Just play like 15 feet off him. If he shoots it, he shoots it. Jones was only shooting like 30% from three. So in essence, Tago Fall was just able to help help on screens and just help in the paint. Um, and they based it, uh, I saw someone call it instead of a box and one, like a point and four. <laughs> 
which I thought was hilarious. Um, but uh, Jeff Walls credited in his post-game interview their video quarter coordinator, Lamont Russell, for coming up with that game plan. So I have to give a shout-out to Lamont Russell. That game plan was fantastic, and obviously you hold Oregon to 62 points. You're doing something right. Yeah, exactly. I would argue that Kylie Shook did the better impression of the Taco Fall defense as I watched a lot of Taco Fall basketball being the UConn men are also in the Americans, so I've seen UCF play quite a bit. But yeah, Kylie Shook just I mean, completely disrupted the flow of the Oregon offense. They did not look like what they normally look like. Um the game plan was excellent. I think a lot of teams struggle with how how do you slow down an Oregon offense when you have uh, Sabrina Ionescu, Ruthie Hebert, and Zetu Sable. If any three of them really go off, you're in trouble because all of them are capable of putting up a 30-40 point game. Um, and they really kind of stopped any of them from doing that, messed up their flow of their offense, and basically how they got the win. Um, and then overall, it was just kind of this Kylie Shook show of the game. I mean, she, in addition to her crazy defense, she also had 18 points and 15 rebounds. So it's an incredible game from her. Um, so, yeah, I think that was definitely an interesting approach. I wonder how much we'll see it kind of tried from other teams, right? Because I think a lot of teams are like, how do you beat this Oregon team? So I wonder how many teams will see kind of take this approach kind of going into the rest of the season as some of these other elite teams play Oregon. Like, will we see UConn put Olivia Nelson a Dota on? <laughs> I don't know that that's a good game plan for them, but just it'll be interesting to see if other teams try it out going forward and if Oregon can adapt if they do. Yeah, I was kind of wondering the same thing, you know, if uh, Louisville kind of drew up a blueprint for how to beat Oregon, you know what? Everyone looks at this Oregon roster and says, well, you know, they get just about everyone back. They're already a Final Four team. They should be even better this year, right, with Sabrina, Satu, Ruthie all back. And really the only major change on the roster is, you know, losing Kazorla to the WNBA, replacing her with Mignon Moore, the transfer from USC. And, um, like, on paper, that doesn't really look like a big change. But I think Louisville might have exposed that that maybe is a little bit bigger of a change than people realize just from the standpoint that Cazorla shot, uh, I'm going to have to look up the number here really well from three last year. Um, it was in the 40%, but Mignon Moore is not really a three point shooter shot in the twenties at USC. Cazorla last year shot 41% from three and, uh, Mignon Moore was about half that. So, that you you couldn't guard Kazorla last year like that. You couldn't put Kylie Shook on her and play just play way off her and dare to shoot. But you can do that with Minyan Moore. So it's it'll be interesting to see how Kelly Graves adjusts, like you said, to um, just if other teams start to play them like that. Um, you know how they'll respond, and I'm sure they'll figure it out. They got plenty of time, and it's probably actually good for Oregon that this happened. Um, especially in November, because now Oregon's going to know how to how to kind of combat it by the time they get to February and March. If no one really figured this out and tried this game plan on them until March, then they might have been ripe for an upset, right? But the fact that this happens now gives them plenty of time to figure it out and be prepared for the next team that throws a curveball at them. Um, so if anything, this loss might be the best thing that could have happened for the Oregon Ducks. 
Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. Um, an early loss kind of got them to adapt to some different types of game plans heading into what's going to be a super tough Pac-12 schedule. So, yeah, definitely good for them. Another thing I was kind of surprised by in this game is with Kylie Shook kind of taking that perimeter defense role, I was surprised that Ruthie Heaver didn't dominate in the paint more. Uh, just because she didn't have Shook, who's probably Louisville's best post defender on her, um, would have expected her to have a little bit stronger presence on the paint than she ended up. She only ended up, well, I shouldn't say only because it's still a double double, but 10 points, 10 rebounds. Um, <laughs> which, it, yeah, for Ruthie Hebert, that's a quiet night, but um, yeah, no, not a kind of crazy like 30 point double double that she's put up, I think, more than once this season already. So definitely kind of interesting that she didn't dominate a little bit more inside with Shook helping more on the perimeter defense. Yeah. Do you think? Do you think they should go to her more? I was going to bring this up too about, you know, Oregon's usage in terms of Sabrina's the best player, obviously, but do you think they should go to Ruthie inside more? I think versus Louisville, they probably should have in that game. I mean, Ruth, she only took 10 shots to score those 10 points. Uh, Sabrina and then Sabale as well, both took 20 and 19 shots um, and scored. I mean, they scored a Sabrina had 13 and then Sabale had 21, but still, I think, um, yeah, had they gotten the ball into Hebert more, she probably would have had more points and the game would have been a little bit closer. Maybe they wouldn't have been able to pull off the win. Yeah, I'm just looking at the numbers here. Uh, Ruthie's usage percentage is 23%. She uh, uses not quite a quarter of Oregon's possessions when she's on the court. Satu is 29 uh, Sabrina's 21. Uh, Satu and Sabrina are both points per scoring attempt, 1.04 and 1.06 respectively. They both score you know, slightly more than a point every time they shoot the ball. Ruthie is almost at 1.5, 1.48, which is a ridiculous number. Every time she shoots, she doesn't even take threes, and she still scores one and a half points every time she shoots. So I definitely think that they should look for her more, even not just if a team throws a game plan like Louisville at them, but just in general, unless they really, really key in and focus on Ruthie and just double her every time she gets the ball. Um, in that case, obviously, yeah, you go to someone else, but I think Ruthie has to be their first option on offense. I agree. She's nearly automatic in the paint, especially if she's not double teamed. Um I mean, the 30-point <laughs> double-doubles that she's posted are evidence of that. Uh, they don't always get the most attention because there's just so much star power on this Oregon team, but she's incredible inside. And I'd also ar- argue that, you know, Sabole's night was a anomaly for her. I mean, two from 11 from three-point range for someone who's usually just so good from beyond the arc. Arguably, in my opinion, maybe the best player on Oregon's team. I think she's just... Uh, her game is so different, but so almost like pro level it's really impressive so i think there was a tweet like last week from skylar dickens where satu sable is not even necessarily has to go to the draft this year she's only a junior but skylar dickens said she's probably the most pro love pro ready player in the ncaa right now and i would 100 percent agree with that uh, just a really impressive game I think a lot of what happened against Louisville was just like the three-point shots. They were, I mean, Oregon took 35 of them. They weren't coming in the flow of the offense like they normally do. They were kind of being forced up just from the disruption of the way Louisville played defense. But I think she's another like really impressive 
offensive option for the Ducks, typically, if they can figure out how to navigate kind of different defensive styles that are going to get thrown at them. Yeah, I definitely agree. I think uh, her two for 11 night was kind of a microcosm of the whole team's night in terms of you look at those nine misses, you know, we could go back and chart them, but probably three, two or three, maybe, maybe four were open looks that she often knocks down and probably five, maybe six of them were just, you know, uh, late shot clock or just not able to get another look because of the way Louisville was just flying around on defense, so intense and closing out well and hands up contesting everything. Um, so you have to give Louisville a lot of credit for, for that two for 11 too. They were, they were always in everyone's face with the exception of Mignon Moore, obviously, which allowed them to be in everyone else's face and not really have to help off of those other shooters like Savali. So that was, uh, that was definitely two for 11 was, a little bit of an aberration again. Definitely, she's not going to have very many nights where she shoots under twenty percent from three. But at the same time, uh, Jeff Walls' defensive game plan and and the intensity, the players, you know, following the game plan and just bringing that bringing that effort uh, onto the court really gets a lot of credit for that too. Yeah, definitely. I think this game was probably the one that was the most surprising to me, just because Louisville just lost so much last year. I mean, they lost Ejder, obviously, and then on top of that, Erica Carter and Sam Fearing, like really three of their best key players from last year's team. And it feels like they haven't missed a beat to go and just upset the number one team, you know, in November or like, I guess that game might have been technically December, but still, um, like, I was just very impressed by them so far in paradise jam and i guess they might still be losing to ohio state right now but yeah i was about to say you might be speaking too <laughs> soon about the missing a beat thing they're missing a beat right now they're down five under a minute so they uh <laughs> they're missing a couple beats but they still have a chance they have the ball i have it on my other screen here um well uh i'll keep going back to that one but i was actually going to um have you seen the movie moneyball any chance? Yeah, a long time ago, but yes. <laughs> okay, I don't know. It might be too long ago then, but do you happen to remember um, they're trying to replace three players, right? And one of them is like a superstar, Jason Giambi, and his on-base percentage was like in the 400s. Um, and they're all trying to worry about like, how do we replace this guy? He's a superstar. You know, he's like, like we're not going to find another player who's as good as him. Um, and then Brad Pitt, Right, says, okay, what are these three players on base percentage? Like 400, 300, 200. All right, so we don't need another guy who's 400. Like, we don't need another superstar. 400, 300, 200, that averages to 300, right? We just need three 300 guys. And we replaced the team production, even though we haven't replaced that individual superstar. And I feel like Louisville looks similar in terms of last year, the three that you mentioned, Asia Durr, Sam Furing, Erica Carter, usage percentages. Asia Deer was 32. She used almost a third of their possessions. Fearing and Carter were both at 17, right? But Louisville hasn't replaced Asia Durr in terms of one player who dominates the ball and dominates the scoring the way she did. But they've replaced each of those three collectively with Dana Evans, Kylie Shook, and Jasmine Jones, whose usage percentages are all between 23 and 26. And I feel like Louisville is more of a team this year definitely more uh, kind of a committee, if you will, but they haven't really taken a step backwards other than maybe what's happening as we speak right now. But 
at least uh, through the end of November, they hadn't, if anything, looked better than last year, despite losing Asia Deer. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. They don't have that, you know, token superstar, but what they have in terms of other pieces are playing together really well and have them looking like a elite team early on when there was a lot of question marks. Kind of on a different note in the same conference in the ACC, we got a team that has a lot of question marks in Notre Dame, which I think last Unplugged podcast, Jacob and I were like, oh, if they come out of this stretch of next stretch of non-conference game four and three, they're in pretty good shape. That looks very unlikely right now. Actually, I don't think it's even possible anymore. I had a really rough, I think, Thanksgiving tournament for the Irish. Any thoughts on any of those games? Yeah, Notre Dame is such an interesting team because I still think they're really talented. Obviously, they have one of the biggest benefit of the doubt coaches, if you will, um, in Muffet McGraw. But at the same time, they're uh, 10 games in now. They're 5-5 five and five, despite escaping on the road at Michigan with a win after being down for most of the game and getting a big scare against Toledo on their home court. They had to come back and win that one as well, being down most of the game. It would be really easy for them to be 3-7 and seven right now with – the next, you know, couple games in their schedule being at UConn and against DePaul, both top twenty teams. So it's not getting any easier. That five and five could become five and seven, which would have easily been three and nine if they dropped those other two games. Their season's starting to get away from them, despite the talent that they have. Um, and it sounds crazy. It still sounds crazy now to talk about a tournament without Notre Dame. I feel like we have to start thinking about it a little bit. Yeah. I don't know. What do you think? Do you think they're going to be in the tournament? I will still be surprised if they don't make the tournament, but it's not out of the question that they won't at this point. I think I was pretty high on them still after like their first couple losses. It was like, they're still good losses. You know, if they can come out of this non-conference stretch four and three, like they're a pretty good team. They could do well in the ACC. I like, the loss to Florida Gulf Coast was shocking to me. I I thought that was one that was going to be kind of in the bag for them. Since they lost that, that was the big, I think, loss for them in this stretch. Uh, yeah, I've almost, I'm have i a UConn fan, and I'm finding myself almost rooting for them. <laughs> I won't be rooting for them on Sunday, but almost rooting for them, just because it's like they, I think, are better than they've looked so far as far as, like, outcomes go. Um, but... Yeah, if they can't find ways to kind of win some of these closer big games, they won't make the tournament this year. Yeah, they're going to have to figure it out. Um, They have Sam Brunel and Anaya Peoples, top 20 recruits. Sam Brunel is a big-time shooter in high school, won the McDonald's All-American three-point contest, but her shots have not been falling, falling, excuse me, which is one of the big things holding them back, I think. She is shooting... From three-point range, 21% right now, um, with high volume, too, because she's a shooter, so she's going to keep shooting. And she's going to shoot herself out of this slump. I know I said this in our Slack at one point. I said it in the, the Notre Dame-UConn preview article I just put up. But she's, she's going to erupt all over some poor team who's going to not be able to do anything about it. She's going to make, like, nine threes out of 13 or something, go off for 37 points. And Notre Dame is going to have a big coming out party and everyone's going to be like, oh, yeah, we, we knew this was going to happen at some point. They're back. They're good. They're all right. 
Um, but that needs to happen soon because if that doesn't happen until February, it might be too late for them. Yeah, I I agree. I, they need to get figure it out soon because if they don't, I mean, this next couple of games are going to be tough regardless, but they're going to need to come into the ACC and really kind of run the table other than maybe like losing to Louisville, maybe drop one or two more. But yeah, if they can't come out and do that, they're definitely in risk of not making the tournament. Yeah, it'll be uh, interesting to watch for sure. It's tough because the few upperclassmen they do have on their team are still learning Muffet McGraw's system, even though they're seniors. You have Destiny Walker and Marta Sneezecker, two grad transfers. So they're in their first year. And then obviously I mentioned a couple freshmen and the rest of the rotation basically is sophomores. So you really don't have a lot of people familiar with Muffet McGraw's system, her offense or her defense, even the two seniors. And so it's a, it's a learning curve and, uh, McGraw's trying to get them caught up and uh, they'll get there at some point. It's just a matter of when they get there and if they are still alive for a tournament berth by the time they get there. Yeah, definitely. I mean, hopefully they'll get Michaela Vaughn back soon. I think she was only supposed to be out for a few weeks. So it sounds like, I don't know, hopefully she'll be back on the court soon, but they definitely drew a short straw in addition to everything they already had to replace with the injuries with Vaughn and then uh, Abby Prohaska with the, I forget what the word for it is, but basically the blood clots in her lungs is probably has her out for, I would guess, the season. So that was definitely a rough break for them as well, being she's probably the player that played the most for them last season. Um, but yeah, it'll be interesting to see if they can kind of start to turn things around, hopefully soon, so that they're still in the conversation for the tournament. Though I will say, if Notre Dame's like, you know, a 10 seed in the tournament, I wouldn't want to be the team that has to face them in March as a 10 seed. <laughs> oh, absolutely, because that that volcano could erupt on the 7 seed. It could erupt on the 2 seed. Yep. It could. It's uh, it's just waiting to happen, and it could happen any any day, any time, against anyone, anywhere. And uh, I know you're hoping it holds off at least <laughs> a few more days until after the UConn game. Yeah this Sunday because I honestly think Notre Dame is talented enough to beat UConn I don't think they're going to beat UConn but I think they're talented enough to play with UConn if if shots fall and things break the right way oh I agree I think that I mean you kind of struggled against a lot of teams this year it's, it would not be entirely shocking if they did it I well actually I'll change that to say if we were at Notre Dame I wouldn't be like I would be concerned because it's going to be at Gamble Gamble is sold out it's going to be a crazy UConn crowd on Sunday. I'm really looking forward to being there to cover it. But, yeah, I think I'll be surprised if they pull off the upset Sunday. But I think it's still going to be a good game. Maybe not the good game to the level that we're used to of a UConn-Notre Dame rivalry game. But I still think it has potential to be a really good game. Yeah, I definitely think so, too. I think uh, Notre Dame, we've seen some other unranked teams already we were talking about off air a little bit, hang with UConn for at least, you know, three or three and a half quarters. Uh, of course, Ohio state was one of them and they're going to be ranked probably next week. Cause they just finished off this win over Louisville here uh, to give the big 10, their first ever win in the big 10 ACC challenge. So that uh, the fact that UConn kind of was close with them for a while looks a little bit better now than it did at the time, but 
at the same time, Seton Hall played UConn close for good stretch today. So Notre Dame, UConn's kind of seems like a team that maybe uh, plays to the level of their competition a little bit, but at the same time, they're just so talented that they end up pulling away in the fourth quarter. But we'll see if that happens against Notre Dame. I would love to see a close fourth quarter. Yeah. Um, so yeah, down goes another number two in NCAA women's basketball. But yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens in stores this weekend. Um, you know, I think a big factor and how close or not close the game is on Sunday is going to be whether UConn has Crystal Dangerfield back or not. Um, she's been out with back spasms. There hasn't been too much information in typical UConn Juno fashion, but um, we shall see if she. Hopefully, she'll be back on the court Sunday. She didn't play against Seton Hall today, but then again, UConn did put up ninety points today, so anything could happen so who knows yeah do you think uh you're kind of our resident UConn expert right our inside scoop do you think Dangerfield will dress at least and maybe be uh, one of those situations where plays sparingly in an emergency but Gino kind of hopes that they'll be able to hold off Notre Dame at a reasonable cushion enough to uh, give Dangerfield a little bit more time to rest but that she might be available or uh, do you think that it's looking likely that she just won't be even suit up for the game? Uh, I think if she's ready to play, she'll start and play. And then if she's not ready to play, she just won't play. Gino's not, never been the type of coach I think that's afraid of a season, like a regular season loss. <laughs> I think he welcomes them more than anything. So even when it is to Notre Dame, which he probably hates losing to. But I think if she's healthy and ready to go, she'll go. Otherwise, she won't. But I also, I don't know if they play can play offense like they did tonight and then kind of improve on the defensive end, they can, I think they could beat Notre Dame without Dangerfield on the floor. Yeah, I definitely think so too. And it's, it's good to, we talk about Oregon being that loss being good for them, but it's also good to learn how to play different, you know, with different rotations, different lineups early on. And this will be good for UConn too, having this little stretch where they have to play without Dangerfield they, you never know if they may get into a situation in March where Dangerfield is in foul trouble in an NCAA tournament game, and they have to know how to how to play without her running the offense. Um, so, having this experience will really really help them down the road in that regard. I think. Yeah, definitely. I think it's been interesting. I mean, like the second game that she's out, um, so it's been interesting to see kind of how other players have stepped up. I mean, UConn's two other seniors, Kyla Irwin and Molly Bent, have kind of both, Kyla Irwin in the first game she was out, Molly Bent today, have both, you know, stepped up for the Huskies more than they have ever in their careers. So it's been fun to watch. And then uh, tonight for the Huskies, the freshman, Aubrey Griffin, was just went off. Um, kind of a funny story because her dad played at Seton Hall, and that's where they played tonight. But, um, yeah, she had 25 points and 12 rebounds, so just an insane game for the freshman. It was really kind of exciting to see if she can start, you know, kind of stepping up, maybe not to that level, but being a consistent, strong off or option off the bench for the UConn, they're going to be a lot better team going forward. Oh, definitely. And we, we should uh, give Kyla Irwin a quick shout out, too, for being atop our leaderboard at the moment in points per scoring attempt with 2.07, the only player in the country above two points per scoring attempt. So every time she shoots, she scores more than two points, which is unfathomable. That's how uh, 
that's that's the kind of zone she's in right now early this season. Yeah, she doesn't shoot the ball a lot, but I think it's a testament to this, so how well she knows her role on this UConn team. Like, she's not the player on the floor that should be taking the most shots, but if she's open, she's going to take it, and when she's open, she puts it in the net like UConn needs her to. So I think a big testament to her role as a senior on this team and the way she's just felling it perfectly. Yeah, do you know how many shots she took tonight? Just one, um, but she missed it. I'm going to pull so. up the box score. Just one. Yeah. Okay, well, that might come down then. I don't know if this is updated. She had, um, let's see, 15 coming in the night. That would be 16. So pretty small sample, but still a big enough number that over two is uh, is pretty cool yeah. for her. Exactly. Yeah, if she can, not that she's going to continue to score over two points per attempt, but if she can just continue to be efficient from the floor when she does need to shoot the ball this season for UConn, she'll be a really strong asset for them, I think. Yeah, absolutely. UConn's kind of, you know, four players that score most of the points are capable of almost doing it all for the Huskies. So if they can just have another option there that can fill that role, they're in pretty good shape. Yeah, definitely. There's something to be said for, you know, someone who kind of knows their role and plays within it sometimes is almost more valuable than some of the high usage or uh, the players who may be really good at something, but they know they're good and they try to be good at something else, too. You know, Mm -hmm. and I think Kyla Irwin just exemplifies exemplifies that type of player who knows what she's asked to do and she just does it. Yeah, exactly. Does it better than anyone else. Agreed. Part of what comes with being, a, you know, a four-year senior or fourth-year senior on a team, it's just a lot of experience. Even though she hasn't played that many minutes for UConn, she's still been with Gino and the team for four years, and is just really shining, kind of in this bigger role she has for the team for her senior season. Yeah, definitely. Definitely, she's fun to watch. Well, that's it for this week's episode. Thank you all for joining us again. And thanks, Calvin, for coming on the podcast with me today to chat about all these great Thanksgiving games and some of the bigger ones upcoming this weekend as well. As always, if you like the podcast, we hope that you'll rate and review us on whatever platform you listen to. Um, Also, make sure that you're subscribed so whenever we release a new episode, it comes directly to you. Uh, we also welcome all your feedback. You can reach us at podcast at herhoopstats.com or on Twitter at herhoopstats. If you have anything you'd like to talk about us, us to talk about on the podcast, please feel free to reach out to us. We'd love to hear your suggestions and we'll definitely try to get them on air. If you like what you're hearing on the podcast, make sure you're also checking out our articles over on Medium and then also the website at herhoopstats.com. Lots of great NCAA basketball stats and new Lobos look is out, which is a great way to preview kind of your favorite upcoming games in the coming weeks for the rest of the season. So definitely check that out. It's just $20 a year to subscribe. Makes a perfect holiday present for your woman's hoops loving friends and family so definitely check that out and thanks again for listening this week some people just know there's a better way to do things like bundling your home and auto insurance with Allstate. Or hiring someone to move your piano instead of doing it yourself. 
So do things the better way. Bundle home and auto and save up to 25% with Allstate. Bundled savings vary by state and are not available in every state. Saving up to 25% is the countrywide average of the maximum available savings off the home policy. Allstate Vehicle and Property Insurance Company and Affiliates, Northbrook, Illinois.